0: today's episode of Virtual Sentiments, I talked to Dr. Jennifer Forrestal, the Helen houlihan Regali Assistant Professor of Political Science at Loyola University, Chicago. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode because I know I was really excited to talk to Jennifer because... I really appreciate the work that she does and how she shows what taking a historical perspective and working in the history of political thought, working on thinkers like Alexis de Tocqueville, who you'll hear about in this episode gives us a sense of how a lot of the problems we ascribe to new technologies like digital media are actually things that thinkers have been wrestling with since before those technologies even existed. Um, and it really, as she puts it in this episode, shifts our perspective uh, and it allows us to reconsider the potential causes and, and therefore the potential solutions to those problems. But what surprised me about this conversation and, and why I'm particularly excited is how much uh, Jennifer was willing to share with us about the process of writing the book that we talk about here, um, and how much living in Chicago influenced her in terms of thinking architecturally, seeing the actual architectural work um, of thinkers like John Dewey, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Louis Sullivan which you'll hear about, and how those kind of pivotal moments in her graduate career uh, influenced her work. So I think anybody who's listening here who maybe is a graduate student or really anyone who's uh, in a creative process or going through a moment um, where they – might wonder where inspiration might come from we'll appreciate uh this conversation um because i think um as we put it as we talk about later in the episode sort of when you think you might be taking a step back um that might be the moment where uh you end up moving forward i hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as i did Today, we're talking with Dr. Jennifer Forrestal. She is a political theorist who works in the history of political thought and democratic theory and recently published Designing for Democracy, How to Build Community in Digital Environments. It's so great to talk with you today. Thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Your work really stands out among studies of digital politics for many reasons, but one of them is that you argue we should think in terms of how the built environment shapes our actions and interactions, not only in the physical world, thinking about sidewalks and parks and urban planning, but online as well. Could you explain what thinking in terms of the built environment or architecturally entails?
1: Yeah, um, yes, that's a really great question. I would say, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question. And I think that my answer is one of of them, but I also think that if you ask architects or urban planners, they would have a completely different response. So uh, I will give it my best shot. Um, And really, I think the interesting thing for me as a political theorist thinking architecturally is thinking about the way that space, spaces, um, the sort of places that we find ourselves Um, work on us in kind of psychological ways. So, and, and just as our behaviors, our attitudes, um, our relationships with other people are influenced by laws, by norms, by things that political scientists talk a lot about. um, So too, are we shaped by the physical spaces that we find ourselves in? Uh, And so, um, in the book, I, I sort of frame it in, in terms of power, which I think is probably right, but mostly the way that I sort of think about it in my head is just that, like, are the ways that we sort of engage in the world and with other people are fundamentally shaped in ways that I, we don't even really think about um, by the physical spaces that we find ourselves in. So um, the sort of way parks are designed, the way rooms are designed, the way that houses are built um, and sidewalks are, are sort of laid out and um, can profound, pretty profoundly uh, change the way that you interact with other people and think about the world. Uh, and so it was really fun to think about how that shapes politics as well.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate. I think that the built environment allows us to, and you, you put it in these terms in the book as well, that They shape us in ways that can almost be invisible or silent, which means they might have even more influence over what we do than we realize. And so your work and other people who think in these terms are helping us, I would put it, learning a new language or a new way of looking at the world to help kind of reveal and better understand those dynamics, uh, which is necessary both for change, but even just for understanding are what we're already doing in our lives.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, there are a lot of political theorists who have thought about the built environment and the places and spaces that we share. Um, but oftentimes they're they're sort of spoken about in terms of public goods as things that we need to manage or take care of, um, which is absolutely right. They they are those things. Um, but I think thinking about the way that they're designed also sort of brings into relief this sort of, like you said, hidden Um, hidden in plain sight, but sort of thoughtless thing that shapes our behavior in these like really important and interesting ways that we just like don't really think about. And that, you know, actually works my content, I would contend works the same way in digital environments as well as it does in physical. But like that the problems that arise are different because the building media um, are different in these two different sort of spaces, uh, physical and digital. And so the dynamics are the same. Um, the ways that they, you know, shape our behavior, the, the ways that we don't even see how they are working um, are present, but they are present in like different ways. So it's like sort of uh, challenging to think through in some ways. <laughs>
0: right. No, definitely. And I think so just to kind of flesh this out a little bit more for people who haven't read the book, but hopefully will consider it after this conversation. You talk specifically about Kind of different features in the built environment. And so I think one that's a, a great example to start with is the notion of boundaries. So I remember that part of your argument is that in the physical world, we can have a wall built and that is a very uh, inflexible and a noticeable aspect of the environment. And it would take, it would be visible to people around if it were to be taken down. Whereas in the digital space, the possibility of boundaries kind of function in a different way. Could you explain a little bit about those differences between the physical and digital spaces?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think to sort of flesh out this example first to just give a little bit more background maybe as well, Right, that the part of why, so boundaries are a key component of what I'm arguing are digital space or democratic spaces. Um, And the reason why is because part of what democratic politics requires is the sort of recognition that we're members of a community with other people. Um, Right, you you can't sort of do democracy by yourself, you need other people to do it with. Uh, And it's sort of, it can be really hard to sort of recognize who you share things in common with. And so one thing in the physical environment that helps us do this is boundaries or sort of well-defined spaces help us think that we have something in common with other people. And like, we might not have thought about that prior, but when you enter into a room, you sort of, psych, again, it's a sort of psychological effect of saying like, oh, like I must have something in common with the, the other people in this room. And so one of the ways uh, when I present this at conferences, one of the ways to think about it is like when you walk into a happy hour right, and you, like, don't know anybody there, part of the reason why it's, like, not weird to just walk up to random people and start talking to them is because you are in a shared space, and so presumably you have something in common. There's, like, a a shared reason that brought you together. So that kind of dynamic is, um, you could say, you know, oh, it's because we're all here for APSA, which is true, right? That's a sort of institution um, that is, bringing or facilitating that kind of uh, relationship between former strangers. Uh, You could also say, well, like it's a happy hour and like you mingle with strangers at a happy hour. Uh, And so, yes, that's true as well. But like you couldn't just do that in like on the street. It's weird to just go up to random people and be like, what do you do for a living? (laughs) Um, And that's because streets aren't as bounded, right? They're not as clearly bounded. And so what boundaries are doing in that uh, physical space of like a happy hour or a bar is like turning our attention to the other people within those spaces and helping us sort of understand that we have some kind of relationship. It's ours to work out, it's not quite defined. Um, Some spaces do that better than others, Um, but sort of that's the sort of first step of of democracy or democratic politics is like figuring out that we have something in common. Um, So all of that is why I think boundaries are important, counterintuitively, I'm sure uh, there will be a lot of people that read this and disagree (laughs) vehemently that boundaries are important for democracy. Um, And so when you move into digital spaces, the same thing is true, right? Like we still need some kind of reminder that we share things with other people that we encounter online. And the problem that you sometimes run into, I've noticed, is that it's actually very difficult to impose boundaries and especially durable boundaries, which is a sort of secondary characteristic that I talk about in the book. to facilitate that kind of recognition between people that you meet online. And so what ends up happening is in a space like Twitter, you sort of go into this room and you like, don't know who's there. You don't know what you have in common. You're like, not quite sure what people are talking about. Right. That like the, the happy hour analogy is like, you're much more, it's much more like the street than it is the happy hour. Right. That it's like, very confusing Uh, and there's like other norms that people have established to make Twitter make sense Um, but boundaries I think would help before you establish those norms to sort of set a space and help people figure out what is going on within them. So in a digital space this looks a little bit wonkier because you don't have things like walls. So when I'm thinking of boundaries in digital spaces it's things like subreddits, Facebook groups, Um, things that are sort of boards that are sort of forums in this kind of traditional uh, old school internet sense of them, right. Where someplace where you can like go into a sort of a room, so to speak a URL that takes you to a specific place and like, know that you will everybody in that uh, digital room is there for the same reason that you are. Great.
0: Yeah. And I think to kind of get more into the political thought of all these uh, frameworks that you're working with, I did want to give you a chance to speak more to the definition of democracy that you're working with, which I think is very important. And at the same time though, maybe often overlooked or underappreciated. And that is what theorists call participatory democracy. Um, and what I w- how I would define, this idea of democracy would be that it's not just formal institutions like voting, but that democracy is a way of life, a set of practices of habits and attitudes and interacting with each other that extend beyond what is kind of sectioned off as the formal political sphere of of elections and things like that. Um, But it's also happening in our interactions with each other in more private spaces, um, and so, what do you think we gain by examining digital technology and its relationship to democracy with this more, I think you call it, a holistic approach to democratic politics?
1: Uh, yeah, so I'll just sort of flag that democracy as a way of life. Is not that me. That's John Dewey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but so, and and there, there's a long tradition of this, which is why uh, the thinkers that I have working with in the book are so old. Um, But (laughs) I think there's a lot to gain from. I mean, I think, you know, putting on my sort of Dewey and hat for a moment, right? Like the neighborhoods, I I think he calls them the the, um, neighborhood sidewalks and living rooms are sort of where we start to establish the kind of, so there's two reasons. The first is that these are like places where we start to establish the relationships that like undergird the more formal apparatus that you are mentioning. It's also where we start to sort of work out the problems that we solve and need to solve, right? So it's sort of where a lot of this work takes place. It's where a lot of the like relationship building takes place that sort of carries us through to the other. more sort of formal apparatus of the state. It's also that like those are communities in their own right, right? That like the neighborhood block that you live on has its own problems to deal with, has its own sort of collective decision making that needs to happen and like sometimes doesn't need to happen with the state, right? Like the way that my neighbors and I negotiate our trash can, you know, <laughs> sort of mess is not necessarily a state level or a formal political problem, but I would argue that it is a political problem and a democratic one in the sense that like there are a group of people that have a problem and need to solve it together. Right. And so um I think you know there there's a the kind of standard laboratories or, or schools of democracy reason for for thinking about participatory politics in that way. Um, But there's also that like, there are just communities that aren't necessarily captured by the state um, that nevertheless have like really interesting collective problem solving that happens and needs to happen. And so the the more that we can facilitate that, the better. Um, But there's also sort of underlying all of that is just like my basic assumption that democracy is the best way to go about doing that, right? That like that is the most appropriate and normatively desirable. Uh, way to organize human life. Uh, And so that is, yeah, I think the sort of baseline of all of that is just like democracy is a good thing and we should want more of it. Um, But it also has the benefit of, you know, helping us in the more formal aspects of our life as well. And I think this is especially true when you go online, where there are all of these sort of new communities that just don't fit the formal state apparatus, right? Like what, and we're seeing all sorts of questions of governance and the state and, and regulation with companies, but it's also like, how do you run a community like Reddit? Like there's not really a state apparatus that's set up for that, but it's like a bunch of people <laughs> that are like working through how to share the space and live together. And so I think participatory democracy gives us a, a tool set to figure out what's going on in these spaces and how to do it better. Um, perhaps- better than other frameworks of democratic thinking.
0: Yeah, and I think that to build on what you mentioned, which is that you're working within a long tradition, so you're drawing on Dewey, you also draw on Alexis de Tocqueville in this book uh, on the notion of what's necessary for sustaining durable communities. Would you mind expanding a bit on that and why you found Tocqueville to be useful in these conversations?
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, and I'll, I'll just say the third one is Aristotle, so it goes back even further, But um, and, and I think what all three of these thinkers have in common, Tocqueville, Dewey, and Aristotle, is that they do have this kind of capacious view of democracy and the kind of relationships that go into it. Um, Tocqueville was sort of late to the party. I actually started off this project thinking about a rent and durability, um, and ultimately decided that Tocqueville would be, I think, more helpful. Um, Mostly because Tocqueville does such a good job of identifying this problem that we're seeing exacerbated today with digital media in terms of what he calls individualism, right? Which is like this sort of slow uh, atomization of society as we sort of disengage from one another and start to do our own thing, retreat into our circle of family and friends, I think is what he says. Um, And you we see that sort of language, that discourse happening around digital technologies though, right? That it, they're isolating us, they're alienating us, they're making everything sort of superficial. They're, the kinds of politics that we see are like very personalized in, sen- in the sense that like, I am personally appealing to you and you will make the choice for yourself, whether this is worth your time. And then you'll sort of do your thing as long as it helps you and then you'll leave. Um, and there's really compelling evidence that, that social media in particular are doing that. Um, But the problem is, so when you read Tocqueville though, what you realize is like the problem is not social media, the problem is democracy, right? That that's a democratic problem. That's not a problem of technology. And so the solution is not a, a social media solution or a technological solution. The solution is a democratic one. And so I think reading the thinkers in general Uh, but Tocqueville in particular is really helpful to just sort of like shift our perspective a little bit on these kind of contemporary problems and to think about, you know, maybe there's something else going on with this thing and maybe there's alternative ways to think about addressing it. And so for the durability question in particular, (coughs) um, what Tocqueville tells us is, you know, individualism is a Uh, Problem of democracy. And so the solution is to sort of draw people out of their private spheres, to draw people out of their private interests, um, and to sort of remind them that they're in part of of society and sort of have obligations to do this, to take care of it in the same way that he thinks aristocrats did naturally for Mm Yeah, we can talk about that. But but. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, but these kind of artificial institutions that people have picked up in the social capital literature to talk about civil society and things like that, uh, and really the key po- element of those that I wanted to pull out is to think about like these are all durable institutions, right? That that part of their appeal is that they they connect. Uh, citizens or people living in a democracy for long periods of time. They keep them connected. And so the built environment, I think, can do the same thing, but it has to sort of stick around. So if you have these boundaries, they have to like exist. You have to be able to return to them. You have to sort of be reminded that you share them with other people, not just in the moment, but in the sort of uh, past and future. And so. You know, Tocqueville is very aware of this. He talks about the family estate, the aristocratic family estate as doing this. He talks about the township as doing this, like part of their, their sort of appeal to him is that they are durable in the sense of like longstanding. Uh, and so thinking about how that translates into social media or digital technologies, which is translates very badly as it turns out, can help <laughs> explain why we're seeing some of the problems and, and sort of disintegration of what he might call the associated life uh, online.
0: Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And I think Tocqueville, um, and this was not something you discussed, but I was wondering if you would, wouldn't mind thinking with me on Tocqueville on these points, because when he does, he he is articulating, as you say, a problem that we still see and that is intrinsic to democratic equality, which is this individualistic and, and personalistic way of relating to each other and moving around the world. Um, But he also does articulate a warning that uh, it's a chapter entitled How Aristocracy May Be Created Out of Industry. And I I think it's an interesting example of, again, this idea of space and of interaction because he talks about how a worker might see the, the owner uh, but they never actually are fully connected to each other, and, and and he is contrasting it to this older aristocratic kind of noblesse oblige type of thing or noblesse oblige uh, concept that even though there's this major hierarchy and in inequality, there's some sense of responsibility and obligation to people who are of lower status. Whereas the conditions that might create a sort of industry origin of Aristocracy is going to be vastly different. Uh, do, do you see any relevance of those aspects to your, your way of thinking on Topeville and sort of the built environment and our interactions with each other and how we how we have a sense of our own civic duties to
1: each other? Yeah. Ooh, that's fascinating. Um this is the problem. So I'll just <laughs> sort of say this. This is the problem with doing political theory in the way that I do, which is sort of just smashing through and taking <laughs> everything that I can and think is interesting from these thinkers and then sort of not caring about the rest of them. Um, so I'm not a technical scholar, but, but I mean, I think, uh, I think that this is why to me, it's so important that the built environment have these kind of three characteristics, that I lay out right that like just having one or just having partial um, is can in fact do more harm than good right so if you think about you know a traditional workplace um where you don't have people where where the sort of environment is laid out in a way that like facilitates different kinds of recognition, right? So if you're actually not sharing a space, if you can like see the boss or know that they're there because they interact with you, but they're not actually in the room with you, you know, running into the problems that you are sharing the the challenges, trying to work things out, then you don't have the same kind of recognition. And the sort of third piece and the most important democratic piece for me is thinking about flexible spaces, which is an element of being able to exert control over your environment, right? And so if you just have durable bounded spaces or, or a, a built environment that is sort of unchanging and also rigid, um, then I'm not surprised that that we would see the kind of results that he is arguing that we would, right? That like, if we don't have any agency over our environment, then it will not work on us to create empowered democratic citizens, it will create sort of um, rigid castes. I mean, I think that's a pretty natural like, argument to make. And that it sort of seems intuitive to me that that would be sort of replicated in the in the built environment in the same way that if you have sort of static and and, or yeah, rigid and unchanging social norms, likewise, you would sort of become sort of cemented into social positions or racial positions if we're talking about Aristotle and inequality. Um and so, you know, I think uh in order for something to be democratic and in order, especially for a built environment to be democratic, it has to facilitate not only the kind of recognition, this kind of durable recognition of ourselves as sharing space and sharing community with others. It also has to facilitate an equal sort of agency or empowerment in everyone that's in that space. Otherwise you're going to run into the kind of problems um, that he's pointing out. Do you, did you have any personal experiences or,
0: you know, academic experiences Uh, that kind of shaped why you have this focus on thinking architecturally and then how digital media came into that equation?
1: Yes. Uh, Yeah. Um, So the short answer is that I lived in Chicago during grad school, (laughs) Um, but I'll I'll explain just. So actually the social media part came first. Um, I was wrestling with this dissatisfaction with the way that a lot of what I was reading uh, scholarship wise and in political sciences is probably not true of what was happening in common media studies and things but in political science um social media and digital media more generally were just sort of like dismissed as being this kind of superficial alternative that was sucking us away from the real you know the real stuff that was happening in person um, and that just wasn't my experience of it you know like I am, going to reveal my age, I guess, but I, you know, I went to college right when Facebook opened up to non Ivy schools and I did not go to an Ivy school. So it was like, yes, like I got accepted to college and I got my email address, which means I can join Facebook. Um, and we met, I met a lot of the people who are now like my good friends, because at that point, Facebook was organized by dorm, in fact. And so you could see everyone that lived with you or within your dorm before we even got to school. Um, and so, yeah, So I was uh, had for a long time understood this to be a place that sort of exists simultaneously to the real world and can enhance those relationships. And in some cases can even have sort of help you form ones that you would not otherwise form because geographically you're too far away or or whatever. Um, And so I was really unhappy with the way that things were going um, in the scholarship on social media. And I just was writing about it, but like not in a really sophisticated way. I think looking back, And then I got really burnt out. So this is another sort of like, for those of you who are at that stage. Um, So in like my fourth or fifth year, I just like was just hitting a wall with my dissertation and I didn't know what to do. And so I ended up actually just taking advantage of a program at Northwestern that like was an internship. And I worked not on my dissertation for a while and I ended up doing internships at like Shed, and I worked at the American Library Association. And what that did is get me into the city of Chicago where I thought about, and I ran into Jane Adams, and thought more about the sort of history of Chicago. And then it t- turned out that Jane Addams uh, and her whole house were a sort of point of community life that both John Dewey and Frank Lloyd Wright shared when they were in Chicago in the early 20th century. And That was like really interesting because it's like, wow, they're like actually thinking about what it means to build a democratic city, like literally and figuratively. So you have Dewey doing his education stuff at the lab school at University of Chicago. Then you have Frank Lloyd Wright and Louis Sullivan, like rebuilding Chicago after the fire. And so there's just like this really rich sort of like body of literature. That's all historical, just like thinking about the city. And as you and many others listening might realize Chicago is like now a just architectural like dream. And so there's a lot of sort of resources here for that. And so I just started reading about that and, and enjoying that. And like, there's just like so much lovely about the city um, <clears throat> that was really intellectually stimulating. And then I happened on this coincidence that Um, when software developers are talking about building software, they actually use the language of architecture to describe it. And so this, again, was just kind of fortuitous because I was like, I have all this stuff in my mind about democracy and architecture. And like that happens to be the same language that people are using to think about software. And so that was what I needed to sort of get the architectural piece in place. Uh, And so once I realized that software developers are thinking of it this way, I sort of took what was kind of an analogy and ran with it and realized that like there's actually all this other psychological stuff and like empirical, um, yeah, empirical evidence about the way that it works on us. And so thinking about it, it just opened up a whole bunch of new um, ways of thinking for me. And it turned out to be this book. And and I can't go back. So the problem when you have something like this, it's like a really compelling framework to you is that like, now it's really hard for me to shake. And I'm like, I gotta do something else now. And I can't stop thinking about the built environment.
0: I, I think that's great then. I think it, like I said, I think it sets the book apart and I really appreciate you sharing with us your process and experience. And I think it does show that following your passions and even when it feels like you might be taking a step back can actually be what's necessary to move
1: forward. Yeah, I think like, and like just getting out, I mean, like I said, I was just pushing so hard and and doing the same kind of things that I had been doing, you know, reading thinkers and texts, and that was helpful. I mean, you know, you can't do it without that. But like, for me, it needed to be getting back into the world. And like, it did feel like I was doing, like, wasting my time in a lot of ways, but it wasn't, you know, it connected me with History that I hadn't thought a lot about, and like other ways of thinking, like, so texts that I hadn't thought about. So, thinking about like Louis Sullivan's writing on architecture um, is really rich, right? And so, I ended up getting into this like archival stuff. Like, you know, it's just like it took me into places that looking back now are like very recognizably part of a research (laughs) process in the history of political thought, (laughs) but at the time felt like a little lost. So, Um, but it was totally worth it. It was, it was a lot of fun. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think even though, You know, you think of this book as architectural. I think one of the reasons why people are so receptive to it as a digital politics book is because, and I think this is something that is really refreshing and something that I find very relatable, you critically analyze aspects and more, you know, it's more about making visible these dynamics online and and how these processes work and, and how we should think about them in democratic terms. But you really come from a place of affection for digital technology, and uh, I I really find I really appreciate that. And I I guess I was wondering if you you could share more. You you did share a bit about how you know being on Facebook in the early days and it, it coinciding with your college college years affected that, but how you kind of think about how to approach digital politics when so often it can be reduced to people who are just super gung-ho and think it's going to solve political problems and those who are more reserved and more concerned with its potential detrimental effects?
1: Yeah, um, I I do take a sort of more optimistic view of its potential. Um, I have been working very hard over the past I don't know, ten years, five years, uh, to try and get more critical about it. I think that my problem has always been not being sufficiently critical, Um, because I think you know there's just a lot of really exciting stuff that happens on the internet. And again, part of this is probably just like I am one of those people who like grew up with AIM, like it was just our mode of chatting. You know what I mean? Our mode of (laughs) communication. And so um, it, I like it hit at the right time for me. But I also just think like it's hard for me to understand how you could not be amazed at some of the things that we see people doing, right? Like I am not on TikTok. I am too old for TikTok at this point, I think, but like I am just in awe of like what I don't know, Gen Alpha or whatever they're called now are like doing with TikTok. Like I think the way that they use it to organize, to like speak to each other, to like collaborate with strangers, like I think there's just like cool stuff that's happening. I think like Reddit just did an April Fools um joke i guess uh that's called r backslash place uh and they this is the second time they've done it they did it first five years ago where every single user on reddit gets to change one pixel on this like big canvas every 10 minutes or something like that right so it's like too slow for one person to take over Um, But obviously it's a blank canvas on the internet. So like, it's going to be a nightmare you'd think, but like what ends up happening and you can watch this unfold. There's a lot of sort of like time-lapse, but like people get together and like argue and like coordinate to try and get their thing on the, like on the canvas to like you know, try and get other people's off of the canvas, and like it's happening in sort of real time. But like, you know, you, it's hard for me to just say like you can't watch that and just be like, this is an entirely terrible technology, right? That like, look at the collabor and this is a kind of a silly example, but it's like look at the kind of collaboration that like people are just hungry for, and I think that it sort of shows us how powerful um, collective action is for humans, right? Like, I think that it's just uh, shows us, it reveals to us a lot of, of ourselves uh, if we're willing to take a look. And I think that that can be really ugly, but like, I think that human behavior has also been pretty ugly for like non-digital yes. history. Right. So <laughs> yes. it's like, it's a pretty convenient story to just be like, everything was great until <laughs> incel took over online yeah. or like Proud Boys showed up. And it's like, so I think what it does is sort of exacerbate some of the behaviors that we see both for good and for bad and the just sort of eternal optimist doing sort of democratic faithful in me. is just like, let's just like enjoy the good things and try to do more of them, figure out why it is that some of these things work so well Um, and try to do that more because obviously people are interested in it. Just look at the internet.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, and as you said before too, I mean, I think it, it's hard. I, I definitely agree. And I was when i was starting my phd it felt like social media was just systematically ignored by political science and of course there are other fields were way ahead of us in thinking about uh the politics on of online interactions but um yeah. and especially i think within political theory i think especially and part of it just being because maybe because of our more historical perspective but i really also came to appreciate the effect of the pandemic as something that has maybe really influenced how people think about digital interactions. And so how has the pandemic affected your research and your thinking on these issues?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, practically, the pandemic was a nightmare. I just didn't do any research but myself. But in terms of my thinking about digital technology, <laughs> yeah. um, I think, you know, again, I think it it has been sort of weird because uh, I found it really difficult to be at home all the time. And so it was sort of made me think about what the role of face to face interaction in person interaction actually is. And it does seem to me that there's a it serves an important purpose that I'm not sure that um, you can replicate online, right? And so like, that was really interesting to me although I've never been one to say we should all be exclusively online, right? Like digital stuff is is should always be parallel to uh, physical real life stuff. Um, but it again also was just like very revealing, I think, in the ways that like people were able to find community in these like really interesting and important ways. I think the number of like mutual aid groups that popped up all over the place is really helpful and interesting. I think It called to my mind, again, I was thinking a lot about Facebook groups in a bad way as a sort of source of disinformation and extremism and radicalization. And Facebook groups are, as it turns out, also (laughs) where like neighborhood groups would organize for mutual aid, where schools would communicate information um, to keep people safe. Right. That like there's a lot of of interesting collective action or organizing that's happening in spaces that have been kind of written off as like, quote unquote, bad uh, that the pandemic, I think, also helped to reveal, um, and so I think it—you know—it sort of made me. I, I think ultimately, I'm in the same place on where I would come down with digital media and its promise and also sort of pitfalls. But I think that it made me sort of reevaluate some of the assumptions that I sort of had found myself falling into in terms of like, yeah, the role of physical interactions, the like ways that people are using certain the. the Certain spaces can always be used for good and for ill, and it sort of depends on who's using them, (laughs) I I guess, right? And so, thinking about like what that means. So, I'm now thinking about a lot more sort of like how we can um, understand things like Facebook groups uh, and extremist groups in general. And so, I think it it added more nuance to that project in my mind, right? That like it's not as easy as just writing off certain kinds of spaces as like these are problematic, full stop. It's going to be more. Challenging than that,
0: yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I also, it really did make me appreciate ways in which digital media can't approximate some aspects of uh, face-to-face interaction. Where I think before, just because of the way that people were thinking about it academically, I was more focused on how there are aspects of digital politics that were more like and more influential to, uh, you know, real life interactions, quote unquote, real life interactions. I, I, want, oh, yeah, go ahead. I was no, just going to
1: say I also it also made me think cuz my partner was going into an office full time and I've never done that I mean like academics just don't usually do that right it's not a big part of our like required or expectations um and so it also made me think about like how well we as academics have already kind of adjusted to a half online half on our own right like i ended up keeping up many of my friendships in the exact same way that i was always doing it because we were like chatting via whatsapp and like texting and like zooming occasionally to like collaborate right that it's like we hadn't thought about this but like we were already in this kind of like liminal hybrid space with work colleagues quote unquote because it's not our colleagues are also always spread out across the world it's we've never had a kind of office environment in the same way that my partner had a really hard time adjusting to work from home. And I was like, oh, we're already doing this. (laughs) This is like really an interest. And and for academics who are like not really thinking of themselves like that, I think it was an interesting way for me to think about the kinds of communities that I'm a part of that I didn't think about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no. And I I just wanted to also get you uh, get a chance to talk a little bit more about all your other research. You have a lot of great research and you have collaborated with Dr. Mineka Phillips on this wonderful edited volume on the wives of Western philosophy, and I was hoping you could speak a little bit more to the importance of and what is the value of thinking about gender in the history of political thought as well.
1: Yes, I'm very happy to do that. Um, so Menek and I had been working on that for many, many, many years, um, and it was it started off as a kind of interesting, curious Coincidence, I think, that almost all of us who teach political theory mention the biographies of the thinkers and sort of talk about their family lives and then just drop it. Um, and so we uh, put together this volume over the course of many years. Um, and it turns out that there's just an established pattern, right? That like the wife serves as an interlocutor, as a sort of um, archivist, right? They, they do all of this work and are not acknowledged for it. In um, some cases, so Mill explicitly tells us at the beginning of On Liberty that all of the best ideas in this book are due to Harriet Taylor's influence. And readers of Mill historically have been like, he can't possibly mean that. right <laughs> Like uh, he's so addled by love that like he's just exaggerating. And it's just like kind of wild when you look at all these stories together. So the volume is Socrates, Aristotle, Machiavelli, Locke, Montesquieu, Uh, Rousseau, Mill, Marx, and Tocqueville. And when you look at even those nine, it's like the same pattern over and over and over again, right? That like there are forms of intellectual production that we dismiss or discount because they're largely done by women. There are sort of ways that the lived experience of the, the personal lives of these men, quote unquote, like almost certainly profoundly shaped what they were writing about. So Montesquieu writing about Um, I'm going to get this wrong, Protestants or Catholics, one of the two, right? That like his wife was persecuted because of this. And we just don't hear about her at all. Marx is like writing his pamphlets in the same house with all the activists, including his wife and daughters, right? That like these are things about intellectual production that we just kind of conveniently ignore in favor of this picture of like great men writing by themselves in their rooms, this kind of Machiavellian, like I put my cloak on and go to commune with the ancestors. Um, And it's just not accurate. And I think so. the wise volume is an attempt to start start that conversation by showing that this is a, a very long tradition and a problematic tradition in the history of political thought that the way that we think about intellectual labor is gendered, but also wrong, false. Um, And I think that it's important that we continue having these conversations as a discipline because we see it, the sort of effects of this shakeout in all sorts of ways. Um, We've been talking a lot about gender and labor in the pandemic with regard to tenure clocks and childcare and elder care and things like that. But it's also just present in like the expectations that we have for say, residential fellowships that, like, we expect people to just uproot themselves and move across the country for nine months to be, you know, in an intellectual community that is almost certainly um, valuable, but, like, at the cost of, like, literally the rest of your entire life, right? And so thinking about that is, like, based on a model of intellectual production that is completely severed from any kind of routine daily home life, the kind of mundane things that we do every day with other people, like wives. Um, And so it's a really fun project and I would love everyone to read it and to think more about it. Um, And there are plenty of stories that are not in the chapters. We could only capture nine. Um, There's also a lot of early modern canonical thinkers who are bachelors, which is a super interesting thing that people should be talking about maybe. Um, But yeah, so that's that. Um, And then Menech and I also have a couple other projects on Things like WikiLeaks, uh, on Yik Yak, on anonymity, and sort of information in a democratic society, and yeah, yeah, it all sounds wonderful and worth engaging
0: with. I wanted to thank you for talking with us, and actually, I do want to give you is—is is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you'd like to discuss?
1: Ooh, I, I don't think so. No, uh, I will just say that, like in my own work, I am trying to. I am yeah I think that architecture is a big part of it I would love to hear people's thoughts on that like so I mean I'm at the stage of that project where I'm like what do people think of this (laughs) I've had it to myself for so long Um, and I'm also starting to think more though about other kinds of ways that we govern ourselves online so not just the built environment but thinking about the built environment is one layer and it's one layer among many so social norms institutions like laws and rules and regulations. So those all interact with the built environment in really interesting ways um, that I am exploring in other avenues of my work. But I'm also really eager to sort of think with others about how those fit together as well. And that sounds like a truly democratic approach. So
0: (laughs) I think that's great. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. There's a few points from this episode that I know I'll be thinking about for a while. First, thinking architecturally about virtual spaces means thinking about how the designs of these spaces shape our behavior. To bring back a concept that we mentioned in our episode with Martin Gurry, this means thinking about affordances, so features of environments, or in this case, social media platforms, where... We are incentivized or discouraged to engage in certain kinds of speech or actions. We talked in this episode about boundaries, which we can consider uh, walls in a town hall, for example, or as we discussed, in a hotel ballroom for a political science conference happy hour. And we could make this analogous to a Facebook group or a subreddit. The boundaries of a shared space signal to the inhabitants of that shared space that we're all there with a common purpose or or, or something in common. So we might feel a little bit more comfortable going up and introducing ourselves to each other. Um, Or online, you might feel a little bit more comfortable asking a question about your hobby in a thematically appropriate subreddit than you would in a completely public Twitter feed. We talked also about the French social theorist Alexis de Tocqueville and his diagnosis of the problem of individualism and isolationism uh, that can slowly develop in modern democracies where people slowly retreat to being just concerned with their most personal lives, their family and friends only. We see this as a critique that's often heralded at digital media that digital media is what's causing this in our modern society and making our political discourse all the more personalistic. Jennifer argues that in seeing Tocqueville discuss these problems, this shifts our perspective. We see that this is a problem that's not unique to new technology, but inherent to democracy. As she discusses in her book, and we talked a little bit here, Tocqueville really emphasized the American township. That citizens' repeated interactions with each other in local politics, as well as in voluntary associations um, and and other social institutions, newspapers, and civil society, draw people out of these personal attachments and help sustain their durable attachments to each other. And I just want to emphasize here that I think seeing the dangers of what we would call here atomization as a potential democratic problem rather than a technological one isn't to ignore the power that digital media has in our lives, but to see both social institutions and social practices and technologies as enabling and constraining our behaviors And two, um, able to be changed. So we can ask ourselves, how can these institutions, environments, technologies be improved to be more democratic, to serve ourselves and our communities better? That's exactly what Jennifer Forstall is doing in her book. And I definitely recommend it to anybody who enjoyed this conversation. I also wanted to note Jennifer's discussion of the creative process of working on the book, um, especially in graduate school. And I have a little shout out to anybody who's listening who has ever had the experience of making something or working hard on a project, either whether they're in grad school or anybody's thinking about grad school or you don't have to be in that experience either. But anybody who who had that resonate with them, that I, <laughs> I know that that resonated with me. Um, To think about moments where sometimes you might be really struggling with something um, and if that's might be your body, your mind telling you that you need to take a break and how important that is to listen to that. Um, That's important for its own sake, um, but also sometimes that can be just exactly what you need for that creative process um, to percolate. Um, and I think returning to um, a, a place of learning, a place of openness, and being able to be inspired and uh, feel passion um, in that way that Jennifer experienced with architecture and being surrounded by the idea of a sort of democratic architecture in Chicago, and then translating that into her work on social media. I think that you can see that in her work. And it's really cool to have been able to listen to her speak to that. Um, and so I, I do just want to say that my heart goes out to anybody who's ever experienced that. Um, so I hope that you have enjoyed listening. And I hope Uh, that you'll join us next time. Thank you.